Welcome to another episode of Me and My Team and the News. I'm Tim. I'm Ben. And it's been a little bit since we've been with you. Ben's had some health issues to get through, but he's yeah. doing much better now, right, Ben? Yeah, I'm feeling eh, okay. Better, I guess. <laughs> yes. It is today, uh, the day we are recording this, we are in the fifth day of the Russian military incursion into Ukraine. And as we do this recording, it's the day that uh, there's a column of tanks outside of Kiev, and uh, the Russians are advancing on other cities, but the war has not gone the way many outside observers would have expected. By the time you hear this, I don't know what will have happened in the war, but I share that so you know what's going on as we record this. So that's obviously been the big story, Ben. I know you've seen a lot of coverage of what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, you know, potential start of World War III does attract some interest. So let's start there. What uh, what have you seen that says this may be the start of World War III? Well, first, Russia put its nuclear defense forces on high alert, mm-hmm. which, you know, isn't great. And the second thing is, If Ukraine falls, what if Russia decides, hey, you know what? That was kind of easy. Let's go take over Poland. Let's go take over Latvia. Let's go take over Estonia. What are they going to do about it? Well, I think that certainly there's some historical context around what happened in Belarus and Georgia. Um, And when there was more intense fighting in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Crimean region, but... The news coverage I'm reading, which it's very difficult in wartime to make sure you're getting good sources because it's hard to tell what's happening in the middle of the war, is that the expectation from the soldiers and from Russian commanders was that taking Ukraine would be a lot easier than it has been. Yeah, I feel like that's what every military superpower has ever said when they're invading any country smaller than them. Yeah, let's go to Vietnam, in and out, real easy. Yeah, let's have World War One, in and out, real easy. And, you know, I think we'll eventually realize that the greatest threat is not just purely the size of a military, but the morale and determination of those under siege. Because, you know, we've seen a lot of you know, kind of heroic moments from the people of Ukraine either taking up arms or making Molotov cocktails. And I think the Russians really underestimated how willing they are to give their lives for their country. And I also think, you know, Russia has done the thing he didn't want is unite the West because all democracies around the world have kind of put their differences aside and said, you know what? We may not get it right all the time with this democracy stuff, and that's okay. But right now, we got to come together, and we got to show that democracy and freedom is what we're going to stand for. And I think Putin really did shoot himself in the foot with this one. Well, he's a very—he's been in power a long time, and you know that doesn't come with the lack of ability to survive a crisis, even of his own making. Um. So just looking at the situation that's been happening in Ukraine, the first thing that really strikes me is how much we do know. You know, the videos that people are posting, the social media instantaneous videos, I don't know if you see on TikTok, there are videos of Ukrainians taking over abandoned or captured Russian tanks and teaching them how to drive them. Or the president posting selfie videos with the armed forces in the most, I don't know, 
Chad moment to ever exist. I like, don't know what that means, but okay. Anyway, it's kind of, you know, ironic that a comedian is, you know, like one of the world's best leaders at the moment because no. he refuses to back down. And, you know, before he became president of Ukraine, he actually played the president of Ukraine on TV. Well, I mean, there is some precedent there. You know, Ronald Reagan, of course, was an actor. I guess. But then again, there's also Trump. So, you know. Well, you know, that's... We could parse out, of course, that a lot of this comes just a few years after the impeachment hearings, after the questions over what was happening in Ukraine with corruption and American involvement and... And those sorts of things. I'm sort of more interested at the moment in the different way we're learning about things. And, the, you know, we talk about nuclear powers battling each other potentially in a conventional warfare, right? That's what would happen if France, the U.S., Britain actively engaged Russian soldiers or I suppose even Belarusian soldiers in Ukraine, right? Yeah. And the fear is that that would spark a nuclear war or world war three yeah i definitely think that's a concern you know if two sides with both with nukes are you know fighting if one side sees that they're starting to lose there's a lot of incentive for them to pull the nuclear button and the thing is you know back in the 60s -hmm. i think it was whoever strikes first wins but now Pretty much every nuclear country has robust second strike capabilities where they have enough nukes and enough bunkers where if they get nuked, they can still fire back. So it really would be mutually assured destruction for both powers. Well, and not just, you know, have enough nuclear weapons in the ground, but nuclear submarines at sea and in the air as well. Not submarines, but nuclear arms. So that even if they all the military bases in the land were wiped out, there are two other points of nuclear attack. Yeah. However, um, you know, what what strikes me really is that we do have precedent for nuclear powers fighting conventional warfare, sort of proxy wars in most senses. You know, the Korean War lasted several years uh, with the U.S. sending troops and Russia backing economically. Uh, Of course, there was China's involvement, similar story in Vietnam. And both of those were terribly tragic wars that lasted a very long time, did not turn into World War III or nuclear warfare. But this is happening right in the heart of Southeast Europe, right? Yeah. So what is, you've seen the sanctions and what's going on. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing in terms of solutions? So the rest of the world's lining up against Russia and, and Vladimir Putin. What are the solutions you're saying? I honestly don't know. Mostly because I'm 15. Mm -hmm. But I really do think that, you know, Russia at home really is getting hit rather hard economically. The ruble has dropped to the lowest price in its history. The currency is basically worthless now. And, you know, I think as Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And right now we really haven't delivered our first real punch, at least economically. We've 
cut off banks, but those have more been like really little love taps, little jabs, you know? The most stringent economic sanctions in history at this point. Yes, but, you know, even if we sanction 80% of Russia's banks, that leaves Putin with a 20%. And as long as he personally and those around him aren't getting hurt, he'll continue this war. And I really do think that part of the reason we haven't done enough is because we rely on Russia so much for oil and gas. I mean, pretty much all of Europe relies on Russian gas to fuel homes. And that gives Putin considerable leverage because if we were to take, you know, any more stringent military action, Putin could just turn the power off. Mm -hmm. So he kind of does hold all of the cards and it's very difficult to make moves against him without being countered and hurting yourself in the process. Well, even the sanctions that have been enacted will hurt the Western economies as well. Not as much, obviously, as they are hurting the Russian economy and what that means for the Russian people. Mm -hmm. It's part of the reason, perhaps, why this war is launched in the winter when it's really cold in Northern Europe. And that's a time when, you know, if this were... May, maybe those leaders would be more like, hey, we've got five months to figure this out, but it's hard to do that, I suppose, in the middle also, of... Also, another like, reason winter. is the terrain. Ukraine is quite low. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of lowland, and the reason Putin had to invade in the winter is because had he invaded in the spring, you know, rainfall, his tanks would have been stuck in the mud. Oh, I see. So it's a lot of geographical pressure, and it puts more incentive on Putin to win this war as quickly as possible because the terrain could prove unfavorable to him. And I definitely think that he kind of really underestimated Ukraine in this fight because, you know, he still only committed a third of his troops that he has. Mm-hmm to the actual fighting. So I think he's probably in the next few days, and I don't know, again, I'm 15, but my best bet is he's probably going to do something drastic. Well, we've seen today the shelling of civilian buildings in city centers. Is that not a war crime? Well, I feel like that's a war crime. I, I, Indiscriminate targeting of civilians has to be a war crime somewhere, right? I feel like indiscriminate and civilians definitely don't go great in terms of not doing a war crime. Yeah. I think he did a war crime. Well, you know, he did support Bashir al-Assad after al-Assad used chemical weapons in Syria. Which yeah. Which universally agreed to be a war crime. Al-Assad's still... In power. Essentially, yes. Um, so I don't think that there was any concern about the moral compass, uh, as it were, of Vladimir Putin. It's but Putin. But uh, the, it is interesting to see the reaction within Russia, which has largely, at least in the news we're reading here in the West, has largely been marked by a lot of protests and people who do not want this war to happen. And, I, and there are actually a couple of the oligarchical billionaires have come out and said, hey, we don't want this war. But I think what's also different that I've not seen before are the text messages and communications from Russian soldiers fighting in the war, talking to their parents. 
Huh. You know, that was never something that could have happened 20 years ago. I also think on the other hand, you know, a lot of Russian state-owned media outlets are still available to the West. The biggest one, I think it's called RT News or Russia, Russia Today. Yeah. It's on YouTube. And sure. they're not demonetized. I think YouTube did demonetize them. But before that, Russia, you know, Putin's a former spy. He knows how to manipulate people. And I definitely think there could be a problem with Russia gaining just enough sympathy to stop the West from engaging in further action. And I saw this. It was a Tucker Carlson clip. So you know it's going to be good. Mm. Of... Him basically saying his main argument was, why do we hate Putin so much? Putin didn't fire you from your job. Putin doesn't spout critical race theory. Why do you guys hate Putin? And that's basically the same logic of, why do you guys hate Putin so much? He didn't start the Holocaust. It's a complete nonsense argument, but it's the kind of nonsense that Putin wants to you know, penetrate media with. Well, and I think even Tucker Carlson has walked that back some, um, now claiming that he doesn't understand why people think he's supporting Russia. <laughs> he doesn't understand anything. It's Tucker Carlson. Well, the man looks not, perpetually confused. Let's not talk about people's looks and let's move off of Tucker Carlson. But let's I get guess. back to talking about Russia and the end game here because... I think there was an expectation that the government would crumble, that uh, Putin, the Russians, would just sort of take over. That hasn't happened. The war is getting much deadlier. And no one knows, I don't know, sitting here, will it be over tonight? Will it last for weeks? Or will the major fighting be over, but there be a forever insurgency? You know, it's it's really hard to say. And I think that the fear and part of the challenge i think the, the whole world's been inspired by the ukrainian military and the people of ukraine yeah fighting hand to hand i mean you've seen there are lines hours long outside of military recruitment centers where men from the ages of men and women from the ages of like you know 18 years old teenagers all the way up to grandmas and grandpas in their 50s and 60s taking up arms making molotov cocktails defending their homeland even if they've never fired a gun knowing that the best thing they could give right now in this situation is their life because they have nothing less to give and they're ready to make that sacrifice and it's honestly really inspiring and it does ask it does beg some questions to be asked you know if that happened in america would we come together like that you know if say new york was attacked would people around the country put aside their differences and, you know, unite? Or are the Ukrainians just a special case? Well, a couple of things. I mean, you're too young to remember 9-11. Obviously, you hadn't been born yet. Yeah. I would say that was very much a spirit in the immediate aftermath. Of course, there was Pearl Harbor going way back. But that's a different time and multiple generations ago. Um, you know, I think there's some of that. Of course, let's not forget Ukraine's been has been actively fighting for the last eight years over eastern Ukraine, and so there's been a buildup of figuring out a how to fight this coming war with Russia, and b what Ukrainian uh, national pride means. 
you know, 20, 30 years ago, most people in Ukraine didn't know the words to national anthem. Now everybody does. And it's a part of, of national pride. As times have changed in the post-Soviet era, and the people of Ukraine have really been galvanized by knowing that their country is under an existential threat, not just this week, but for the last eight years, has, I think, led to a lot more resolve. Um, but we still have to see what happens. I do think that resolve has allowed other countries to do some of the sanctions and for the yeah. UN to take this up. I think if this had gone as quickly as people had expected and Russia was in charge already, we wouldn't see all this aid. We would just see a lot of speeches about how terrible it is. But yeah, instead, and I definitely think to add to that, because Ukraine's actually putting up a really good fight, that makes countries more willing to give aid and to take sides because no one wants to be on the losing side, you know? If Ukraine was getting absolutely hammered, I definitely think it would have been a lot less robust support. And, you know, it is forcing a lot of countries to, you know, take a firmer stance. Germany has upped its military spending mm -hmm. and is committing thousands, probably not millions of euros in aid to Ukraine, including ammunition, fighter jets, and, you know, just cold hard cash. And even Switzerland has decided to give aid to Ukraine. And as they say, everybody gangsta to Switzerland chooses a side. I mean, they never didn't heard that saying, but <laughs> they didn't choose a side in World War II, but they're choosing one now. And I think that just speaks to how much everyone really is inspired by Ukraine and especially its leader, you know. Especially in 2019, I didn't have a whole lot of respect for the guy. And now, mm -hmm. I would put him up there as one of the greatest leaders in Europe, if not the world. I mean, the absolute courage and leadership that he has shown in this crisis. Refusing, even after the U.S. said they could evacuate him. And he said, we don't need a ride, we need ammunition. I just find that incredibly you know, moving and incredibly inspiring to see a man so committed to his country over the preservation of himself, really, and willing to, at all costs, defend the land and the ideals that he loves. And I really think that's what's inspiring the rest of the world to take such a hard-line stance that they've never taken before, is because that we see in Ukraine what we want to see in our own democracies, you know, of unity and of equality and freedom. And, you know, I think it's also a little bit of fear because, you know, a few years ago we just thought of Ukraine as this backwater, kind of corrupt, war-torn area. And now we kind of see Ukraine as this thriving democracy of 44 million people. And I think it's definitely caused countries to say, hey, they're just like us. If they fall, are we next? If they fall, what happens to democracy around the world? Will this just embolden, you know, China to take over Taiwan or the Taliban to get even more terrorist-y? Yeah. I don't know, but it does really 
force us to ask ourselves, are we next? You know, a couple of interesting points there. First, I think that Ukraine's president's willingness to say, I will die for my country, when in so many cases, I think we would have expected the president of a country like this to be evacuated with his family because the the Russians have said that's what we're trying to do is to replace the government. Instead, they said, no, I will stay and I'll fight and I will die here if necessary. And the Klitschko brothers are another great examples of that. Yeah. But it's interesting you mentioned China and the Taliban. First of all, the Taliban has condemned the Russian invasion. Ah, um, uh, yeah, that means a whole lot. Well, Thanks, Taliban. In many ways, they are not fans, of course, of Russia, considering that Afghanistan was fought Russia for a long, long time. Yeah. And not to mention the persecution of some Muslim minorities in Russia. I do just think, you know, the point I was trying to make, not specifically yeah, sure. about Russia or China or the Taliban, is if this autocracy prevails over democracy, will that inspire other autocracies mm-hmm. to say, hey, Russia did it, let's right. take over our neighbors. Right. Well, and I think if we see... That's a long story in the history of the world. Uh, China's been an interesting case because there is a fear of China watching this to see what happens, to see what would happen if China were to invade Taiwan, Chinese Taipei, which China considers still part of China. Even though that's just wrong. On the flip side, China's walking economically a narrow space here that could work out very well in some sense because by abstaining in, in the original UN vote, if Russia becomes an international pariah and the West won't deal with Russia financially going forward. Well, Russia's going to sell all their natural gas and mineral and steels and oils to somebody. And that somebody's China. And of course, we also have to remember that China does share, you know, one of the world's longest land borders Mm -hmm. with Russia. You know, they are neighbors. And I really don't think it would be viable for China to take a hard line stance because I think they kind of do like what Russia's doing, but they just can't say it out loud. Perhaps. But there's something more I want to talk about too. How this has galvanized the world, how it's affecting us individually, personally, emotionally. Yeah. Um, You've seen the people going into Ukraine to help the Ukrainian uh, military fight. Yeah. Thousands are lining up at the Polish border you don't need a passport. The border guards just like go to. You're going to fight in Ukraine. All right, here's a gun. Go get him, Tiger. And you felt like you wish you could do that. Of course, you know I kind of do feel slightly powerless here. You know when great tragedies strike, especially in times of war. You know a lot of people feel like they can't do more to help. Mm -hmm. I think that's always true, you know. And so I really do think it is time for the U.S. to take stronger measures than they have before because the real money in Russia isn't just through their banks. It's through their oil, right? That's their Mm -hmm. biggest, strongest thing. So I would think if we cut off the oil... Would that just, you know, stop the war? Because without oil and without these precious metals, Russia doesn't have a whole lot of an economy. 
Well, I mean, I don't know. I think there are steps economically to sanction, but the, the big thing that's been cut off is smart chips, um, which are critical for doing things like developing weapons and smartphones and that sort of thing. Unfortunately, weapons development really doesn't help in the here sure. and now. Right. Fuel does. And if I think, you know, we could, it would be a drastic step, but an embargo on all trade with Russia, I really think would be a gut punch to their mm -hmm. economy because especially well, if the EU decided we're not taking your oil anymore, we'd rather freeze. I think that could definitely force Putin to change his mind because if we can't, if we won't do anything militarily because I personally don't think the U.S. government should get involved because last time we got involved in a proxy war, it didn't end too well. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think on the diplomatic side, at least, it's our duty to do everything we can economically to hurt Russia as much as possible and to punish Putin. And that making the price so high, perhaps they'll find a, a way to scale back and stop this invasion or... Perhaps others will come to power in Russia who would do that. Uh, and I also think another point, and this kind of does tie into, you know, the current state of, you know, energy in the world. We wouldn't really have this balancing act, this predicament, if we didn't rely on fossil fuels so much. Well, I, I mean, mean, if we weren't. Russia would have far less power to influence anyone if we didn't need their oil. Well, I think that's wrong. No, that's true, not just of Russia, but the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, why do you and think we haven't condemned Saudi Arabia for the multiple human rights violations they do on a daily basis? It's because they have something that we need. So take away that need... And they have nothing. Yeah, and we should point out the United States is now a net exporter of oil. But uh, worldwide, globally speaking, resources, of course, are critical. And perhaps part of the reason that uh, Putin has been so... Um, has so wanted Ukraine is that, especially Southeast Ukraine, there are a lot of resources and minerals there. Um, and I definitely think, actually, I'd like to ask you, mm -hmm. what do you think is Putin's ultimate goal? Do you think he wants to like make the Soviet Union too get the band back together? You know, I read a, a, a fantastic book by a journalist named Catherine Belton a few years ago called Putin's People. Really an excellent dive into Putin's background, his history, from being a KGB agent when the Berlin Wall fell, and he was stationed in East Berlin, uh, or in a different part of East Germany, uh, up through his rise to power. And it's hard to say, it's always been a mix of Russian pride, uh, anger at the West for the Soviet Union's collapse, but also taking what was the KGB merging it with organized crime, turning it into a vast money-making enterprise that became part of the Russian government and his rise to power. So he's kept this balance of power through enriching supporters um, 
and taking money away from detractors and throwing them in jail, so to speak. Yeah. And as long as the oligarchs were happy, uh, he's been able to stay in power. But it's a tricky balance there because if the oligarchs express being unhappy, they could lose all their money. So it's, the question is, why is he doing this? And it doesn't seem to be the financial motivation because even the oligarchs that seeing what's going on here, losing all their assets worldwide are like, Hey, stop, uh, Putin, don't do this anymore. But they say Putin isn't listening to them. And so he's always been concerned about his legacy. Uh, as in one reason he has refused to step down and retire, so to speak, is because there's a fear that as soon as somebody else is in power, uh, they will come for him and remove him as a potential political threat. But the theory that seems to make the most sense is that he has seen himself as Peter the Great or reliving Catherine the Great, the idea of Russian expansion into Europe and that these countries were stolen from the Soviet Union and really should be part of Russia. That ego seems to be the overriding narrative, that that's the goal, um, bring back the glory of expansionist Russia. But it seems like, I don't know, first of all, he thought it would be easier. And it seems like in the face of all of the devastation and the ruin on his own country's economy, it just doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, so another thing, and this has been... A topic of hot debate among people in the media is Putin acting rationally anymore is he motivated purely by rational self-preservation of perceived threats or is it something more sinister than that well it's awfully hard to do a psychological profile from here in central United States but this is also not a sudden thing it's not like one week, you know, one day Putin woke up and said, let's go invade Ukraine today. This has been an eight-year buildup. It was a long, slow process. And I think we can say, by the way, when government leaders and dictators say, you're crazy, we're not going to invade, stop being so hysterical, and then they invade, uh, that is to watch actions instead of listen to words. This is a long-term plan. And long-term plans like this don't generally come from somebody who suddenly has lost their faculties, so to speak. Um, so he may have grossly miscalculated. He may have calculated it exactly. He may be expecting all this. And he might, he might expect and believe that the minute the war is, quote, over, that uh, the rest of the world will need Russian resources so much that they'll start to forget about their outrage and begin to ease those sanctions and begin to have Russia become part of the global economy again. Those all could be considerations. You know, this may, to him, this could just be a rough patch that's a little rougher than it's supposed to be, but his end goal, you know, he may feel like he can still meet that and that the world will forgive him so long as he has gas. I definitely do think that that's a correct assessment. I also feel like Putin and his oligarchs, I heard this amazing quote and I cannot remember, but who it's by is Putin is angry that he's no longer running a superpower because, you know, as the world transitions to more cleaner, greener energy sources, they're going to rely on Russia less and less. 
And as that happens, Putin's slowly going to see Russia kind of fall into a state of decline because the big thing propping Russia up right now is its oil and gas industry. And as we are very slowly phasing out oil and gas, wow. does that mean that Putin feels like this is a last-ditch effort to regain as much power as he can before his inevitable demise? I think that's overstating, just honestly looking at timelines of things. I mean, the, the world is going to rely on natural gas and oil and minerals for a very, very long time. Unfortunately. Long past uh, Putin's expected lifespan. So I don't think climate change or changes in energy policy are likely to be driving forces. I mean, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was built last year and, you know, the expectation of turning it on, so to speak, so certainly Russian exports of gas are growing and growing. So I don't think there's any validity to the idea that he sees All solar right. power as a threat to Russians uh, might. Um, sorry to debunk that for you. Hey, it's fine. I just needed to know. Yeah. But if that's not the case, then what does he see? I guess... His main line of reasoning, or at least what he's said on television, is this is NATO's fault. NATO keeps coming into Soviet bloc countries. NATO will threaten me. And it seems more like a man who is, you know, paranoid that he will be removed from power. What do you know about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Not a more than a little, but not a whole lot. So the Cuban Missile Crisis really began when it was discovered that nuclear weapons yeah, were moved being into Cuba. moved into Cuba, and that to the U.S. presented essentially an existential threat. And uh, it was resolved essentially when the Soviet leaders said, "Fine, we'll take our missiles away." So in that context of seeing the West military buildup, Putin may be thinking in the sense of like, um, it's already one of his big complaints is that there are missiles and American military bases in Europe that can hit Russia. And he's long said, get rid of your missiles, get rid of your bases in you know Germany or Poland. And Ukraine's even closer. Now, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And, Although they want to be. Well, now, but, you know, they never applied to be a member of NATO. Um, and it's likely that Putin is pushing them more that way. I think he was hoping that Ukraine would go the way of Belarus, you know, that they would get a sympathetic leader to a be in his sphere state. of influence and not worry about it. But, you know, the affirmative self-defense, in a sense, like we're attacking because we want to keep them from being able to attack us is really tenuous territory and largely as many of the things he says it's really just an excuse for this grab of of land and resources and the ukrainian people so it's a power grab simple as that and he can you know he can put as much lipstick on a pig as he wants it's still a ugly hog it seems that way though the miscalculation here seems to be if he just would have left ukraine alone you know, the Russian economy has been growing and growing. and as, as Why becomes, not just play nice? You as know? it becomes more integral into the world stage, you know, 
their econo- the economy for Russia would grow a lot more than fighting a war it didn't need. And so this just seems like a misstep in so, so many ways. But at the same time, when the Iron Curtain, the original Iron Curtain went up, so to speak, or when nations and even in Europe have invaded other nations, it takes a really, really, really long time for them to get out. And, and oftentimes they never do. And so he may just feel like once he has control of Ukraine, if he does get control, it'll be impossible to remove Russian influence in Ukraine. And that might be his long-term goal for whatever reason. Is to exact a new sphere of influence as, you know, satellite states. Basically just the old Soviet Union again to keep the West out. He wants a new Iron Curtain but an iron curtain that has a few gaps so we can keep shipping out more oil. And we do see that happening. Uh, I just saw that term today, this idea of a new iron curtain, and that there are families and people fleeing Russia because they don't want to get stuck in Russia if the rest of the world stops participating with the Russian economy or allowing people to travel. Um, They don't want to be in a situation like it was in the 1980s when you couldn't leave the Soviet Union, you know, to go visit... Um, France or wherever, um, that could very realistically be a possibility. I mean, right now, you can't catch a flight from Moscow to... Anywhere in the EU right now. Basically, or the US or Canada or Japan or Australia, you know, a lot of places. And so there's a lot of fear among the Russian people, and, you know, as, as we might expect. Um, but it's a very tragic situation with no good answers. The moment we can all feel good about in sort of a patriotism towards democracy way is the resolve the Ukrainian people are showing and that we, as a world almost, are rooting for them. But how will that last? What happens next? We don't know. Yeah, and I definitely think war, as with many things, is unpredictable. And, you know, something could happen 20 minutes from now that completely nullifies everything we said. But, you know, as of right now, this is the best information we're going off of. And, you know, sometimes I feel like it's okay to say, especially in situations like this, we don't have all of the facts. Not all of the cards are on the table yet. And I really think that we can't make any concrete long-term predictions about what will happen next because we just don't know. Well, never a truer statement has been said than that there are many things that we don't know. This episode has been entirely focused on the conflict in Ukraine, and I think that's appropriate given the state of things today. Yeah. We do thank you for joining us here, and we hope that you'll continue to follow and share the news and let others know about our podcast, Me and My Teen and the News. I'm me, I'm Tim, my team is Ben. This is me and my team and the news. Goodbye, everyone.